Church, let's open our Bible to John chapter 8 as we will continue with our study of this gospel. Thank you. One-armed bandit. Good job. This morning we're going to look at verses 31 through 38 of John chapter 8. Contains one of the most popular phrases in the entire Bible. I'm sure you'll catch it as we go. John 8, 31 to 38. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your Father." So read the words of the living God. A few months ago, I was traveling back with uh, my family from St. Louis, and uh, as we were driving across western Missouri and Kansas and eastern Colorado, which are all basically the same thing, I was thankful to have something to pass the time. There was a, a man in the, in the South who had uh, found Cross to Crown Ministries, and, and uh, he contacted me and said, hey, I'm preparing for a debate. Would you be willing to uh, spend some time talking to me, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this as I prepare for this uh, theological debate? And I said, sure. So we had an hour and a half or so driving across uh, no man's land, and it was, it was wonderful to, uh, to talk with him, and I, I got to play sort of the, the devil's advocate in a sense, you know, and, and, and try to sharpen him for this debate. And then I got to listen to the debate and, uh, and see, oh, that's not what I told him to say. Oh, he should have said that differently. Oh, that was good. Yeah, that's exactly what I told him to say. That was great. Um, and and it, was, it was fun to listen to this. If you've ever listened to a, a really well-orchestrated debate, they can be very enlightening. They can be educational. They can, they can be wonderful. I'm not talking about the political debates, you know, where nothing is actually being done and, and the, no, the sides are not represented fairly. I'm talking about a, a, a well-orchestrated discussion where one person holds one view and another person holds another view and they go back and forth and, and you get a chance to hear the different sides. You get to hear some of the biases, some of the, some of the, uh, the assumptions that people are making, some of the assumptions you're making. You, know, you, you find yourself being confronted with issues and since you're not in the debate itself, a lot of times you listen a little bit more with an open mind even to the opposing argument because there's no emotional attachment at the moment. You're, you're just learning to understand. So I find it very interesting. I, I like to listen to debates when they are well done. 
As we've been walking through John chapter 5, 6, 7, and now into chapter 8, at least in one sense, what we are observing, here we are 2,000 years later, we are observing this debate back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his day. Now, clearly there's bias involved. Uh, Jesus is right and they're wrong, right? I'm assuming we all agree with that. And, and the Pharisees are not always open to the opinion of Jesus. In fact, rarely are they. But some of the Jews are. And we get to hear the different responses and observe them as Jesus says one thing and these leaders say something else. That's helpful for us. We need to learn what Jesus has for us as we observe this dialogue going back and forth. And it's important, that maybe the most crucial and most important comment that Jesus makes throughout this whole section is how you get eternal life. I shouldn't say maybe. It is the most important thing that Jesus teaches through this entire section is how one gets eternal life. Because as we know, we've talked about this over and over again, we're all going to die. The end is coming. And the question is, what happens next? And the scripture says we will be raised to judgment and either face eternal death or eternal life. And Jesus has said multiple times through this interaction with the Pharisees, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. You will live forever in a wonderful setting. Paradise, we call it, heaven. And as Jesus says this, we see and observe many people believing They say, yep, I want that. I'm with you, Jesus. And then Jesus says another hard thing. Like, if you're going to have eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, not just you, but that's really hard. No thanks. And they walk away. Remember that? We saw that a couple chapters ago. They they heard Jesus say, you have to consume me. It's all about me to believe in me and follow me, love me, eat me, not in a literal sense, but, but, but consume me. And, and some of them said, we don't want that. He said, well, you couldn't come to me unless the Father drew you to me. And they said, we don't want that either. We don't want anything to do with you. Jesus turned to the 12 and said, are you guys going to leave also? And they said, where can we go? Because you're the only one that has the words of eternal life. So Jesus would do something or he'd heal or do some miracle and some would follow and say, yep, we're on on your team. And then he would say something hard and they'd walk away. We see this back and forth and back and forth. It's crucial as we look at this text, as as we listen to this debate, it is crucial for us to be able to answer the question, who are those who truly believe? If eternal life is contingent on believing him, believing in him, who does that? What does that really mean? Jesus said, if you notice in the verse 31, he's speaking to those who just professed belief. They believed in Jesus, said, yep, we're on your team. We're going to follow you. We want what you're, what you're selling here. And they believed. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed, he says, if you continue in my word, you are truly the disciples of mine. How do we know who truly are believers in Jesus. If you, if you look at the surveys of America, depending on which survey you look at, some would say 
40%, some would say 50, some would say 60. I've even seen surveys that say up to 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. Certainly that high of a number of people say they believe in God of some sort. But all these different polls, surveys are taken and people say, yep, we're Christians. And if you go and travel around the world, they would, all over the world, they would say America is a Christian nation. Okay, so we have millions of people who say, we're on Jesus' team, we believe. How do we know? How do they know? How do you and I know? How do we know that our following Christ is real? We don't like this question very much, do we? We don't like this question. For some, you were taught that the moment you said the words, you went forward at a service or you were baptized or some expression, some, some profession of faith, you're in once and done and it doesn't matter what you do after that, you're in. Some of us were taught that. Some of us hear this kind of question and we don't like it because just the weight of guilt weighs us down. We look at our lives and say, I'm not perfect. I don't always act like a Christian. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Why do we even have to have these conversations? Can you give my soul some rest? I'm, I'm plagued by my failure. Neither of those is a good place to be. Neither of those are biblical. But we do need to ask the question, how do we know if we are truly disciples of Jesus? Jesus seemed to think that it was an important question because he addresses it. You will know, you are truly my disciples if, he says. By just saying that you are truly my disciples implies there are some who are not truly his disciples. So it's important to know the answer to the if. If what, Jesus? You are true, my disciples. If what? He answers it. He says, if you continue or abide or remain in my word. That's what he says. You are truly my disciples if you remain in my word. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean if you complete the Bible reading plan you started in January. Anybody on track? One, two, three. Somebody in the back, four. Four of you. I, I'm so tempted to ask how many of you started the Bible reading plan in January. Thankfully, that's not what it means. But isn't that kind of what we think when we hear that? If you abide in my word, what we tend to think is if we keep reading this book. Now here's the problem with that thinking. Number one, this book wasn't written yet when Jesus said these words. At least this much of it was not written yet when he said this. So he couldn't have been saying, if you continue to read the New Testament, you will be my disciples truly. Right? And the Old Testament doesn't even mention his name. Although he's all over the Old Testament, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean if you go through a religious activity, then you are truly my disciples. 
If you read the Bible every single day, if you come to church every Sunday, if you do this particular thing, this religious thing, this Christian thing, then you are truly my disciple. It's not what he says. It's not what it means to abide in his word. I stress this because we are so driven, it seems, by our feelings. See if you can relate to this. You go five or six days in a row. When you do complete your reading plan, you check it. You read those four chapters you're supposed to read. And you spend 20 minutes in prayer. You have your prayer journal or your prayer list, and you pray. And you come to church several weeks in a row, and you go to small group. And maybe you're in a, in a ministry, and you, you fulfill that ministry, and you're feeling really, really good about yourself, right? I'm a Christian. I feel saved. I feel like, oh, yes, I've got it. I'm good. And, and then you go on vacation, and you forget your Bible, and you forget you have a Bible on your phone. And you don't read the Bible for a couple days or a week, or you miss a small group, or whatever it is, and now you start to feel less Christian-like. Throw in there any sin, any given, giving into temptation, and now you don't feel so good about your relationship with, with God. How much of our, our perspective of whether or not we are his, truly his, is based on our feelings, which are driven by some kind of a religious practice? He doesn't say, if you do X, you are truly my disciples. He says, if you abide in my word, which is not exactly the same thing as the Bible. Now, we're 2,000 years later. Jesus is not here to talk to us. So the only way you can abide in his word and know what he says is to read the Bible. So I'm in no way discouraging your Bible reading. You need to get back on your reading plan, people. But what he's saying here is, it is not just a perfunctory performance. It is abiding in me and what I've told you. That's what he meant when he said, I'm the bread of life. If you're going to have eternal life, you have to eat me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We're not cannibals here. He's saying, you have to consume me completely. I am your everything. You live to please me, to walk with me, to love me, to know me. There are plenty of people who read the Bible who don't abide in his word. What's his word? It's what he says about himself. It's what he tells us to do, which again are contained in the New Testament. But there's not some kind of a checkbox relationship here. He is pointing and drawing everything from these people to himself. He's going to go on and say, if you do this, you will know the truth. Well, we'll get here in a, in a few months. In chapter 14, he's going to tell us what that truth is. And guess what? It's not a what, right? What's the truth? Three people know what it is. What's the truth? Jesus, the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the truth. He says, I am. I want you to know me, not just facts and figures. Jesus says, very strong statement here, 
if you continue, if you remain and abide in my word, the testimony of who I am, what I tell you, you are truly disciples of mine. It's not just some experience. It's not baptism. It's not going forward in the service. It's not praying a prayer. It's not going to a meeting. It's not coming to church. It's knowing him and abiding in what he has said about himself and his teaching. That's what's true of those who are truly his disciples. And it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And he's not saying this to cause us the kind of doubt that discourages us. Now, for them, maybe, because they're back and forth and back and forth. Oh, we believe you, now we don't. And think about how much of their belief is based on what they received, their benefits, remember? They follow him because he feeds them from a few loaves and fishes. He feeds thousands of them. They say, yep, we like that. We will follow you. And he says, well, here's what I expect of you. No, we don't want any of that. And he heals a guy who's been lame for 40 years. Yep, we like that. And he says, but you have to follow me and, and give up your pursuits for me. And oh, we don't like that. We want you to just t- keep taking care of us. And he says, I'm not going to keep doing these signs the way you like them. And they say, never mind, we'll go find another Messiah. We don't like you very much. So for them, yeah, he had to, he, he is calling them to evaluate, to examine. For us, for most of us at least, this shouldn't be the kind of thing that drives you to discouragement and despair unless you're wishy-washy in your pursuit of him, but to remind you it's not about some religious exercise. Draw near to Christ. Hold fast to Christ, he says. Abide in me and my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, these Jewish onlookers don't like that statement at all. Now, these are people that just said they believe in him. We're with you, Jesus. We like what you're saying. This is good. And then he says, I can set you free. And they say, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, do you know who you're talking to here? We descend from Abraham himself. We have never been enslaved ever in our existence. Now, here's what I wish Jesus had done. Here's where I wish he had pulled out a coin and said, whose inscription is on this coin? Is it Abraham's? Is it any Jew? Right? Where do they live? They, they, they lived in the Roman Empire. Guess who was enslaved in the Roman Empire? The Jews. Right? I mean, they've been enslaved by Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and now Rome. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. Huh? Study your history, buddy. You were not enslaved for about 30 years in the midst of all that. The rest of the time, well, not even that, less than that. And the rest of the time, they've been enslaved for, for, for a long, long time. Maybe they had something else in mind here, but it just seems like a very strange statement. We're descendants of Abraham, we've never been enslaved, and Jesus says, yeah, you are. Jesus isn't talking about the Romans. He says, you have another master. In fact, everyone, he says, who commits sin has another master. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, in English, we have this word commit, 
And if you take that at face value, there should be 100% of the people in this room who are getting a little uneasy right now. It's a pretty strong word, right? Anybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. I would assume that if I asked this room full of people if any of you have committed sin in the last week, 100% of the hands would go up. I hope that's the case. Well, I mean, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. Now, the, the word itself, it says whoever does sin, and the way it is uh, expressed in the, in the Greek structure here, it's an ongoing kind of thing. That's good news. He's not saying that anybody, if you happen to have committed sin yesterday, that you're a slave to sin. But if, if this is ongoing, if this is what you do on a regular basis, he says you're a slave to sin. You have a master. It's the same thing that Paul says in, to the Romans. He says, all Jews and all Gentiles, we are all under sin. It says that in chapter 3 of Romans. And, uh, that's just a short way of saying both Jews and Gentiles, everybody is under the rule or the mastery of sin. It, the way Paul uses it there is like we have a master, call him master sin, and he tells us what to do and we do it. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you believe in free will? Absolutely. I freely do all kinds of things. I choose all kinds of things and so do you. But that's not the end of the story, biblically. Yes, we are free to choose things, but we are born with a master. If you have a true master, no matter what you would like to do, you are going to submit to the master or else there are consequences. That's how slavery works. And as the Bible unpacks this, we freely, in our natural state, we freely choose to obey master sin. He says, go do that, and we say, I, I would love to do that. He says, go do this. I would love to do that. I freely choose to sin because I'm following my master. I'm doing what he tells me to do. And Jesus says here, everyone who does sin is proving he is a servant of master sin. Now, these, these Jewish folks said, well, no, no, no. What are, you, what are you talking about? Remember, already they've denied this. And he says, no, you don't understand what you do understand. You are seeking to kill me. And they're going to go on and finish this, this uh, interchange by doing just that. They're going to try to kill him. These people who just said, we believe in you. We are your followers now. At the end of the story, they will pick up stones to try to kill Jesus. And if his hour had come, they would succeed. They flip-flop really quickly because they don't like what he has to say. And Jesus says, that will prove you have a master and his name is sin. Your actions follow your true master. Or he'll change the metaphor in the next passage and talk about your father. He, he says a little bit in this one, I do what my father says, you do what your father says, and he's going to go on and call them children of the devil. That's part of the reason they wanted to kill him. So look, think about the people that you encounter. Think about your neighbors, your, your coworkers, your friends, your family who are not believers. 
You realize they are enslaved to sin? We talk to them and we talk about them as though we expect them to behave differently. We're just appalled at evil people doing evil things. We're shocked when those who are enslaved to sin follow their master. But we shouldn't be. We should be shocked when they don't. When they decide not to follow master sin and actually do something good, that should surprise us because that's not their nature. We live among a people enslaved to sin. We should not be surprised that they follow their master. Then Jesus says in verse 35, and this begins the, uh, the ire, this starts, provokes the ire of these Jews, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. Now, if you've read the New Testament a few times and John and other passages, you will understand, even if the first audience didn't understand, there is a, a complexity to what he just said. The old covenant Jews who did not believe in Jesus are slaves, not of God, but of the evil one. Paul expounds this in Galatians, remember, in that story where he says the Jews, the, the, the descendants of Abraham are actually children of Hagar, the handmaiden, and we Christians, even Gentiles, are actually the descendants of Sarah, we're the, the free and the, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the, and the Jews hated that comparison because they claimed Sarah as their mother. And the New Testament comes along and says, no, if you don't follow Christ, Hagar is your mother. That's, that's lurking behind the scenes here. You're a slave. Jesus is saying to these Jews, you are a slave in God's house, not heirs, not sons. Can you imagine that? If you put yourself in first century Judaism... They've just said it. We're descendants of Abraham. We are the heirs of all of God's promises to Abraham. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're a slave, a servant. You have no right to the promises unless you become a son. Also implied in what he says is the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. Whenever the master decides to release the slaves, to send them off, to, to, to get rid of them, to trade them, to... to to be done with them, the slaves go out because they have no enduring right to the household. However, a son inherits the estate. A son remains in the house forever. So Jesus just called these Jews slaves and that their residence in the household of God is temporary and saying the only way you can live here permanently is to become a son, an heir. How can we do that? How can they do that? How can anybody move from that status of slavery to sonship and inherit the promises? That is the great news of verse 36. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is the only way to transition from the slavery to sin and the temporary status to become a son of the Father and receive the inheritance and dwell 
in the estate forever. The son, the capital S son, has to set you freed and free. If he does it, you will be free for sure. That's what the word indeed means. Realize what this means for us? We were also slaves of sin. We weren't Jews, but we were slaves of sin. All of us were born into that family where our master was sin. Paul describes this at some length in Romans chapter 6. This is how, what we were born into, and he says, now we have been set free from that. Look with me at Romans chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's just made a big deal about how uh, the, the gospel, how Jesus' coming was magnified. His grace was magnified because of sin. And what some foolish people will do is say, well, if my sin gives God more glory and allows him to show more grace, then I should sin more so that God gets to show me more grace and be glorified. No, that's bad thinking. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We were in the realm of sin. We were ruled over by master sin. That was our status. We died to that realm, he says. You can't continue to live in it if you're dead. Or do you not know? Maybe somebody doesn't know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Jesus' death on the cross was a physical death. When we put our trust in him, we spiritually join his physical death and we die spiritually. Verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus' physical resurrection, his coming out of the tomb quite literally, since we're joined to him, our spiritual resurrection occurs then as well. We are new creatures. Those of you who were in the Sunday seminar this morning, we talked about this. That's the time that we receive that new birth, that new heart that Ezekiel prophesied about. We're made new in Christ. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, we died with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that body that was enslaved to sin, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You see, Paul here is just borrowing the same language from Jesus. He's saying when you put your faith in Christ and died with him, you rose again, and now you are freed from slavery to sin. Do you believe that? <laughs> Thanks, Barb. Somebody believes it. You were a slave of master sin. There was a time in all of our lives when we could not help but pursue our sinful desires. 
It's who we were. We just sang. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Well, there was a time in your life when slave of sin, that's who I was. That's who I was. That's who I was. If you are in Christ, that day is over. You have been raised in the power of Jesus and you are no longer a slave to sin. And master sin continues to come to you and say, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to lust this way. I want you to be greedy this way. I want you to say these harsh things. I want you to resist authority. I want you to whatever it is. And he comes and says, hey, you belong to me. I want you to do this. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't belong to master sin anymore. You're my slave. I'm your king. I'm your Lord, Jesus says. And you no longer need to submit to master sin. You know who wants to tell you and convince you that you're a slave to sin? The master himself, Satan. He wants you to be convinced you can't help it. He wants you to rationalize your sin, justify your sin, be completely swept up in your sinful temptations. He wants you to be discouraged, defeated, disappointed in yourself, constantly thinking, oh, oh, I'm just a poor sinner saved by grace. There's nothing I can do until I get to heaven. I'm going to keep doing this over and over and over again. Those are all lies from the pit of hell. If you are in Christ, you have been freed from slavery to sin. There is no temptation that you cannot overcome, not a single one. Paul's going to go on and say, present your bodies not to slaves of sin, but to slaves of righteousness. Because righteousness is now our master. Chapter 8, he says this. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led of the Spirit, these are sons of God. Now, I'm going to make a point that I made all through the Galatians study, but it's worth repeating. He does not say sons and daughters of God. That's important. We should not use inclusive language here. In that culture, daughters did not inherit the estate. Only sons did. My sisters in Christ here, if you are in Christ, you are a son of God. You have been elevated to full heir status. This is what Paul means when he says there's not male and female. Not that there isn't actually differences in the sexes. Of course there is. But before God in the inheritance, we are all together on the same plane, the same level. I talk to husbands all the time. I read in 1 Peter 3, and Peter there says very clearly, live with your wife according to knowledge and don't treat her as inferior. She's a co-heir of grace with you. 
We're all together sons of God if we are being led by God's Spirit. Sons of God are not enslaved to sin. Is Jesus enslaved to sin? No. And neither are his adopted brothers. So I ask you again, is there any temptation that you cannot overcome? Say it louder. There is no temptation. You are not enslaved to those desires. They are there, and the enemy knows how to exploit them, and he wants to, but every time you give in, it's because you have forgotten who you are. I may have shared this with you before. Whenever I was a a teenager and I would leave my house, my dad did not go through the list of things I should and shouldn't do. He just said one thing, remember who you are. And he didn't have to explain it. I knew he meant two things by that. Number one, he meant you're a gooden. And there are things that goodens do and there are things goodens don't do. Do not disappoint me. Or else. There was always an implied or else. (laughs) But secondly, and more importantly, what he is saying was, remember you're a child of God. You represent Jesus in this world. Don't forget that. And don't behave in such a way that you will bring shame and reproach upon the name of Christ. That's who we are. We are his servants. Well, I want to say it in this context When you walk out these doors this morning, remember who you are. You are not a slave to sin. You're a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has empowered you and given you everything you need to serve him, to please him, to obey him. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. It's who you are. The only voice in your head, the only voice in your head that is telling you you can't overcome this is the devil himself. The Spirit of God is not saying, oh, that one may be too big for you. Yeah, I I know, you've been dealing with this all your life. You're probably right. You're just going to continue to struggle with that forever. That's not what the Spirit of God says. Oh, there are voices in your head that do say that, but none of them are from the Spirit. Your Heavenly Father's not saying, yeah, I get it. You, you, you can't stop that. You can't change that. I mean, your past is so bad, and you've done it so many times, and you know, it, it was in your formative years when you were so impressionable, and yeah, you can't overcome that. It's not what the Spirit of God says. We talked about this in some Sunday seminar. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the the person of the triune God who raised Jesus from the dead. Right? Whenever the scripture describes Jesus' resurrection, it gives the, 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 the power, gives it was the Spirit who did it. And in the new covenant, which we live in. That same spirit has come to indwell God's people. So if you're a Christian here today, 
the living God, the God who created everything, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, he indwells you. Do you believe that? So the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, who created the universe, indwells you, and you've got a temptation, a weakness, a struggle, a depression. Do you think that spirit who raised Jesus from the dead looks at your situation and says, I don't think I can pull that one off. I mean, you know, the death of Jesus, that was really hard, but what you're dealing with, yeah, I just don't think so. Of course not. Don't ever let the enemy convince you you still belong to him. You do not. And this afternoon, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and every day, world without end, you have the ability to walk in righteousness and joy and hope. Because if the Son of God set you free, you are free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I will, I will admit there have been seasons in my life when I have forgotten this. I'm sure my brothers and sisters in this room have gone through seasons, maybe some of them right now are in a season where they have forgotten this. Where they've been practicing giving into temptation so much that they're not sure they can get out of it. Father, I would say two things. It, number one, I would ask two things. It, number one, if, if that's true of anyone in this room and that ongoing practice of sin is indication that they are not truly your disciple, I pray that you would grant them genuine faith today. That that old heart of sin would be replaced with a heart that wants to please God and that your spirit would fill them, transform them for the first time that they would walk in newness of life. And Father, for any of my brothers and sisters here who have believed the lie of the enemy that they can't change, oh, would you draw their, their heart and their mind away from that old master, remind them that he has been defeated, remind them of the risen Jesus Christ and his spirit. Enable them to walk in the freedom that is real. Oh, Lord, sanctify your church. Make us holy. Make us righteous. Fill us with joy that we might please you. Amen.